You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This is the Average Conservationist podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities in the organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. up everybody happy wednesday welcome back to another episode of the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host marcus ewing all right um as i've talked about in previous episodes um october was org month um, but given that veterans day falls next friday on november 11th um it was very fortuitous the way this all played out is that um backcountry hunters and anglers armed forces initiative afi was an organization that I really wanted to highlight um, during Org Month. Um, however, uh, I had a, a lot of great feedback and responses from some other orgs. Um, so essentially what we're doing is we're extending Org Month 
we're pushing it out and we're doing a two-part series um, on the Armed Forces Initiative of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So today is going to be uh, part one of that series and today I'm going to be joined by DJ Zor. And <clears throat> DJ is on the board for um, the AFI, the Armed Forces Initiative part of BHA. And uh, DJ and I have uh, an awesome conversation. Um, the episode runs probably uh, a little bit over an hour, but I would say in talking to DJ prior to recording and also after recording, I mean, DJ and I talked for easily over two hours. Um, you will certainly pick it up throughout the course of the conversation that DJ, DJ is just one of those guys who um, is super easy to build a rapport with. And we talk about uh, a ton of great stuff as it pertains to AFI. Um, really, we kind of talk about an overview of, of what the mission of AFI is. And DJ does a really good job of talking about the Armed Forces Initiative as it pertains to more of the active duty um, and really how the AFI helps um, a lot of active duty uh, military, um, you know, in whatever capacity that is, uh, helps them acclimate to the current situation that they're in, in terms of where they are stationed. And, you know, for, for someone like DJ, let's say, who grew up in the Midwest, was then stationed um, down in Georgia, um, down in the South and between rules, regulations, um, you know, just not knowing, you know, really a lot about the lay of the land, um, down there, how AFI helps make it possible, um, for those individuals who are serving our country, um, are relocated into a different, different, uh, area of the country, um, helping them overcome some of the, I guess barriers um, in, in terms of being able to get outdoors. Um, the AFI is, is really great about, you know, explaining to them and teaching them and, and getting them um, comfortable with the situation that they're currently in, how they can uh, utilize the outdoors um, uh, potentially with the bases that they're on, um, whether they're able to actually get outdoors and, and hunt uh, or fish on their bases. Uh, what it looks like for owning a firearm, keeping that on base, and, and really all of the intricacies that go into active duty military and their ability to be able to hunt. Um, you know, DJ and I, I don't want to say we go down a rabbit hole, but we we get kind of deep. Like we talk about, you know, what the outdoors looks like to us and, and some of our experiences and really how the outdoors is able to heal us and, you know, just the, the, the mechanism, I guess, that the outdoors is for past, present, um, retirees, all, all sorts of different, um, members of our armed forces. And, you know, the, the armed forces in general is, is one of those things that has always been, uh, really interesting to me because while, you know, um, I have not served in any capacity of our armed forces. Um, I've certainly had family members and friends who have served and, you know, the, the sacrifice that, um, you know, the, the men and women of this country make for our country, uh, is something that, 
cannot be overstated enough. Um, they are making the, the ultimate sacrifice serving our country and to have an organization like BHA that sees the importance of the role that they play, um, I, I think is, is just amazing. And, you know, one of the, the con, the kind of the, the common characteristics that a lot of, uh, men and women who serve have is this ability or is this kind of inherent need to serve, um, something, you know, much larger than themselves and conservation as we all know is, is one of those things that, um, you know, you're, you're serving a, a much larger, uh, gosh, I'm not even sure what the, the right word is here, but they're, they're, they're serving a purpose much larger than themselves. Because as I've talked about, um, previously on this podcast is, you know, conservation is this, is this long game, you know, a lot of, uh, individuals are, are, you know, giving back their time and their effort and their energy for something that, you know, potentially they're never going to have the chance to, uh, reap the benefits of. So to, you know, give these men and women, a, an opportunity to, um, you know, refocus or give them a new mission, uh, and conservation being that mission, um, I think is something that, that makes complete sense. Um, to me, it seems like, a I don't want to say an easy transition, but it's, it's a transition nonetheless, that is, is one that is, you can easily see the connection between the two. So, I mean, you'll hear throughout the course of the conversation that DJ is very passionate about not only, you know, the time that he served this country, um, as a submariner, you know, living, gosh, two years of his life, um, in a submarine, which is just, uh, in and of itself, uh, an incredible feat. Um, and DJ kind of gets into that, uh, as well, but it's, uh, it's a great organization and one that, um, I think was probably long overdue for, for some of these big orgs to put an emphasis on. So, uh, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let you listen to DJ and hear him talk about, uh, his experiences, what AFI means to him, uh, what it is in general. So, um, part one of our tribute to our veterans, uh, our veteran day tribute, um, yeah, part one, DJ Zor with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Armed Forces Initiative. Uh, enjoy, everybody. All right, DJ Zor, welcome to the pod, man. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, ever since um, we spoke, we uh, we got connected. I think it was maybe a few weeks ago that we uh, kind of put the wheels in motion for this. I'll tell you what, man, I've been super excited Um and the fact that we're able to um, kind of parlay this, uh, the, it just timing-wise, it was just kind of fortuitous, really, that we're going to be able to, to do this, um, this two-part series um, leading in the week before and then the week of Veterans Day, uh, I think is just, it's a great thing. And, I, and I'm super excited to, to hear more about the AFI. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you guys hosting us and, and helping us get our message out there. It's, it's pretty awesome. And like you said, the timing is fortuitous. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly an important message. Um, I think that 
<laughs> we're gonna like repeat ourselves a bunch here because we got to we got to talk so much before we started recording. But the you know the what the active duty the you know retirees the um, you know veterans the that in that entire community um, sometimes it just feels like it's it's not celebrated and talked about enough. You know, not only for the work that they do, but then you know when they come home and you know it, the the reacclimation process, um, you know everything that kind of goes along with that uh, is something that is is very important. And if we can do whatever we can uh, from an organizational standpoint, whoever that organization is, to make that a little bit easier, a little smoother transition for for. Um, you know, people that served, uh, I think is, is an incredible thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, that's, and that's only a part of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, as we're, you know, definitely helping with, with reacclimation, it feels great to be outside, um, wilderness heals. I don't, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist or whichever one makes that determination. Um, but I, I can tell you, man, you know, after four or five days in the wilderness, you start to feel good. Um, and the, the more days you can tack on to the end of that, the better you feel. And so if I can share that experience with someone else, that's what I want to do. Um, but on, on top of that, you know, we're, we're building conservation leaders, right? We're taking leaders from the military community, making them leaders in the conservation arena. It's, it's a natural fit. And in my opinion, we should be the one of the loudest and unsilenceable voices for advocacy for for wild places, scientific management um, and, and healthy spaces to go outside and recreate in. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. So, DJ, before we kind of really take a dive into the Armed Forces Initiative, tell me about yourself, man. Tell me a little bit about your past and, you know, where you, you know, what branch you served in and kind of what brought you to, you know, the place that you're at now. Sure. Um, you got a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I got all the time in the world, man. <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm originally from the the Midwest, uh, born in Milwaukee. And, uh, you know, outside, I, I spent my, my time cutting my teeth in, um, in Manitowoc or Sheboygan County, just north of Milwaukee, all through childhood, um, hunting with my my grandpa and my uncle, um, or fishing, or trying to help them on the farm. Um, just do anything I could outside, kind of in in rural Wisconsin. Even though uh, between Milwaukee and, and St. Louis, I pretty much grew up in the city. Um, and then after high school. Uh, dabbled in the, the thought of being a motorcycle mechanic for the rest of my life, um, made that realization and then, uh, quickly found out that like, man, 30 years later, this is not what I want to be doing. Uh, <laughs> luckily I was still like 19 or 20 years old when I came to the conclusion that that was not the career choice for me. Um, so I hopped on a submarine for six years and, uh, served, served in the Navy for a six year hitch, uh, mechanic in the engine room on the USS West Virginia. Uh, I had the pleasure of having a Trident missile for the foot of my bed for five years of that time <laughs> and um, and got out and got into hydropower or nuclear power generation and then now hydropower generation. Um, so now I'm, I'm out in rural Montana and uh, chasing Western dreams, man. I'll tell you what. That doesn't sound all the back half of that story does not sound all bad. The uh living on a submarine for six years, 
I don't know that that's really for me. And uh, but no, that that's a that's a great story that you know you kind of had this vision of one thing, right, with being like a, a motorcycle mechanic and realizing that it wasn't for you, right, that that's not where you wanted to be 30 years down the road and pivoting. And I don't want to say like uh, pulling a 180 because it, it, you were still, you know, using um, the things that you knew and learned, you know, throughout, you know, growing up with from a mechanical, you know, side of things. But then, you know, pairing that with serving your country, what was it like living on a submarine? Um, it's, it's honestly extremely boring. Uh, so the, the boat I was attached to, were not part of like a, a carrier group or a strike group or anything like that. Um, we had the potential to carry 24 nuclear missiles. Um, so we do that quietly and without anybody knowing where we are for three months at a time, come back in and another boat goes out and takes her place. Uh, we do maintenance. We're two crew boats. So really the, the maintenance periods should be short. We should be able to flop over to the other crew. They take it out for three months. Um, and we just kind of go back and forth. Um, so basically I spent five of those years, six months underwater and, uh, six months either in training or doing maintenance, keeping that old girl just chugging along. So, where were you stationed out of? Like, where was it on the East Coast? East Coast, yep. St. Mary's, Georgia. Um, so there's Kings Bay Submarine Base down there. Uh, it is in the very bottom right-hand corner of Georgia. The St. Mary's River is what we would take to go out to sea, and that is the Florida-Georgia border right okay. there. So we'd go out right between Amelia Island in Florida and Cumberland Island in Georgia. Okay. I, I mean, how do you get used to that, right? Like living essentially in a tin can for, for six months at a time. You don't. Uh, um, <laughs> and that's what it, it, that's what made it pretty easy for me to make the decision um, that I, I wasn't going to sign on for another hitch. I was, uh, you know, prou proud of what I'd done. Um, but it is a, it's a rough existence um, doing that for, six months out of the year. And, um, so I, I made the decision that I was going to move on to a career to finish a career outside of the military and hand the reins over to the next guy willing to carry the torch. Um, I think that the average age at death for us, for a guy who spent 20 years in submarine service and retired is something like 53 years old. Oh, wow. Wow. That's like 20 um, years so the, less than the national average. Yeah. So the stress, stress, and that's the average, right? Yeah. Um, so stress is super high. Um, we, we worked an 18 hour day, um, which, so we didn't work 18 hours straight. Basically our day was 18 hours long, um, split into three, six hour shifts. So you would be, you know, on watch for a shift off watch doing maintenance and then sleep for six and then back on watch. Okay. So in like in a 90 day patrol, there was really, you know, whatever, one, one third more than the 90 actual days. Cause there's no sun. So the, I guess the Navy figured out that that's the most efficient way to get work out of us. Um, so it's, it's super rough. I don't, um, I don't recommend it recreationally. Some, someone's got to do it. But yeah. It's, um, <laughs> so how did you land my first choice? Yeah. How did you land with the, the armed forces initiative, uh, 
part of BHA? Um, so I've been been a BHA member for a long, long time, um, a life member for a long time. And the, the AFI program uh, came around in 2020, and it was a simple, logical fit um, for me to, to jump on board with that. Prior, prior to moving up to Montana, I lived in Arizona for a decade, and down there I was the co-chair for the state chapter for a period of time before leaving um, and just kind of been involved with, in BHA for, for a while. And this was a, a natural fit. And um, so we're just going to take this program and run with it. Yeah. And I guess I got ahead of myself a little bit there. For those DJ unfamiliar, tell me exactly what the um, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers BHA AFI Armed Forces Initiative is. Uh, oh, thanks for clarifying acronyms. It's, it's easy to talk in, in, in acronyms and, and get everybody <laughs> lost. So Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, um, I'm sure most of your listeners know, is a nationwide organization um, really focused on public lands, access, and responsible habitat management, um, promoting hunting and fishing on those public lands, access to them. Um, and then what the Armed Forces Initiative is inside of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is our own kind of military community inside the conservation arena. Um, so this is this is a space for active duty, for veterans, retirees, um, and we're we're not at all um, specific to any you know combat veterans or non-combat veterans. Um, if you were guard, if you were reservist, um, any Basically, if if you signed on to anything to volunteer your time to service to your country, uh, you've got a you've got a place in the Armed Forces Initiative with BHA. Um, and really, our, our goals with the initiative um, are to maintain hunting and fishing for the active duty community. Um, for me, I didn't hunt or fish the six years I was in the Navy, mostly because going from cutting my teeth in Wisconsin. Um, to southern Georgia, there's a lot of barriers and a lot of things that take a lot of time to, to figure out and overcome. Um, and it, it may seem super simple, right? You move to a new place, you look up the regulations, you figure out how to, um, you know, how to, how to work those regulations, find a place to go, and you go hunt and fish. For the active duty military member, um, time is just not there to, to do all of that problem solving. Um, and maybe a little bit of motivation isn't there either. And so it's, it's easier, um, to get, you know, behind a video game, go to the bar, any, any other, um, you know, maybe less, um, less productive uses of your, your recreation time <laughs> than maybe hunting or fishing, you know, where you can really, Get get in this, get, um, you know, even if you're just if, if you've got a cannon, you can get in if it's springtime and you can get into the turkey woods for for two mornings or something. That two mornings um, spent in a turkey blind or, or leaned up against a big old oak tree is is probably going to be way better for you than um, sitting behind a computer or or sitting behind a bottle at the bar. Um, so part of you know the goals of the program are to set somebody up on as many installations um, as we can, where basically we've got someone there for you to say, 
okay, Marcus is, is now in, I'm just going to use, I'll use you and I as examples, right? So Marcus shows up in St. Mary's, Georgia from Michigan. Marcus knows how to hunt deer. Marcus knows how to hunt turkeys. Uh, he probably knows how to hunt upland game and fish for a bunch of stuff that doesn't exist here, right? So <laughs> what do I need to do to get Marcus into a turkey blind? What do I need to do to get him into the deer woods? Um, what do I need to do to get him the right access to get either inshore or offshore um, and, and put some fish in the net? And basically, we, we want to help you solve all those problems and fast track you to spending time in the woods. So you're not spending a month figuring out how you're going to go hunt for a weekend, right? How do we get you a firearm on base? What are, what are the regulations here for having that firearm on, on base? And, and is the armory restoring that? What, what are your options there? What are the regulation differences for you in Georgia versus Michigan, right? Like we need to get you a license. Is there a military license program in your state? Is there not? How do we how do we break these barriers down? Now you're in southern Georgia, public land. You got the Okefenokee Swamp. There's some stuff out there, but lands are a little bit limited. I can get you to hunt on base. Now I've got a spot for you to hunt. Now I've been out there, and I know I know the area. I've been stationed there for a couple of years, or maybe I maybe I got out and I'm I'm DOD on base now, and I know the area, and I've got a spot that I'm going to put you and I'm gonna lend you a tree stand and it's fall, you're gonna get up in that tree stand and you're gonna archery hunt for deer because that's an option on base here. Every installation is gonna be different. So we can't just have this like big wide blanket approach. Um, so what we're doing is we're, we're trying to build a network at every installation we can to have a Marcus there, to have a DJ there, to have a Marty Bartram there at, at, at Fort Bragg um, whatever we can do to, to fast track people who are from out of state now serving in that location. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like, like a, like a mentor program to, to some degree. Right. But not necessarily. Absolutely. Yeah. And, but not necessarily in the way that you see a lot of like mentor, uh, mentor programs in the outdoor space now where it's, it's a new hunter. Right. And, and it's not to say that, you know, a veteran or, you know, someone, not a veteran, but someone gets stationed on a base. Um, and you know, they just, you know, their bunk mate or, you know, they, they meet some guys who are really big into hunting or to fishing. And all of a sudden now they want to get interested, even though they've never done it. I'm not saying it's, it's always like that, but you know, in, you know, speaking in like the example that, that you just ran through, you know, it's, you're essentially DJ becoming like my mentor for that area, teaching me the lay of the land and mentorship is, it's one, it's one of those things I've talked about, uh, with a lot of, um, previous guests and it's, it's so fulfilling, right. To, to be able to totally. kind of help someone on that journey, whether they've done it before or whether they haven't to kind of introduce them to what you know to your way of life to to your way of hunting in georgia as opposed to you know michigan here i mean that's those are really cool things and, and you build some really strong bonds doing something like that yeah definitely everybody's talking about r3 and and have been you know for maybe the last decade or so that r3 has been the big thing i joke around we, we just have r2 right <laughs> we're, we're working on retention for the active duty community and reactivation for for folks like me who didn't hunt or fish for the entire time they were uh, active duty. And now they're, you know, now we need to bring them back into the fold um, and, and get them back out hunting and fishing. Yeah. Um, 
So we, we kind of, we kind of skipped one of those R's. Yeah. How much did you miss it in that six years that you were serving? Oh, big time. Um, I mean, hindsight, I had opportunity to hunt turkeys. I had opportunity to hunt deer. I had opportunity to fish and it was, it was easier to go to the bar and <laughs> it always and is my, my motivation tank was, was often drained, you know? So, so overcoming even, you know, what I just talked about, there's simple barriers, right? I moved to Montana in the last few years and I'm, I'm figuring, I'm figuring it out, but I've got a regular full-time job. I'm not out to sea half the year. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, pretty cut and dry and easy to do. Um, but for, for the active duty community, it's just, it's just not. Um, so I, I missed it immensely. Um, I, one of the biggest things I missed out on, and I'm just, I'm just realizing this now thinking about the, the, the gravity of this one is kind of setting in, um, as I've had a couple of good antelope seasons, I grew up kind of around a card table with a bunch of old guy farmers. Um, I was, I just, if I could be up at my grandparents' place in rural Wisconsin, I was attached to my grandpa's hip. Uh, so I grew up sitting at a sheephead table, right? I didn't grow up at a poker table or anything like that, right? Have you played sheephead before? Do you guys have that over in Michigan? No, I was just, cause I was, my next question was going to be, did you guys play Euchre when you were growing up? No, no. So we're, so Wisconsin is a sheephead state, not a Euchre state. All right, but, that's um, fair. I mean, you've, you've like the, the sticks at a sheephead game or you like, you might walk away either up about $3 or down about $3. Okay. That's <laughs> uh, all right. So not a high stakes game, but, but the banter at the card table and, and the camaraderie, I think is what, you know, and these are all guys who, who farmed through the great depression. Um, I just, I just lost my grandpa in the last couple of years, um, at, at 89. Right. So he and his buddies and like my, my great, great uncle sat around that card table and they would all talk about their annual pilgrimages out West for antelope and mule deer. Um, and I just, I grew up listening to those stories and, um, and I had, I had the opportunity to go hunt that, you know, I was too, too young. Um, you don't want to bring a snot nosed kid with you all the way to Wyoming, uh, <laughs> to, to hunt antelope and mule deer. Right. So like, the, I, I didn't ever get invited to that trip until I was more mature. And, um, and I, the last two years that they, um, that they had access where they, they kind of leased a spot from a lady for a week. And there was a cabin there it wasn't much of a cabin, but there was a cabin there. Um, she got married to an outfitter and the prices went to something that a bunch of blue collar farm boys from Wisconsin couldn't, couldn't keep up with. Um, so while I was in that, um, that antelope camp out in Wyoming kind of dissolved and, uh, and I had the opportunity twice to go and both times, um, sea schedule dictated otherwise. And I was out oh. to see those Octobers. Oh, so that, that one I, I missed, um, a lot. And then I think, you know, I, I didn't, um, I didn't put meat in the freezer. I didn't do a lot of fishing. Um, and it just, um, I didn't miss it actively, but looking back, I missed it, you know? Yeah. Let me ask you this. So you, you alluded to having a couple successful, um, the last couple seasons were successful antelope seasons. 
what's that feeling like for you, you know, growing up, you know, around this table of, you know, of I'd imagine, you know, when you're this young kid, I mean, these are like mountain of men. These are like legends in your eyes, right? You I mean, grandpa's, you know, they have this mystique about them, especially as a young kid, right? Like grandpa's seen everything. He can do anything. percent, Right. So what was it like for you that first, you know, that first solo antelope punt that you go on, you punch that tag. Like, I mean, like I'm thinking about it right now. Like if I was in that situation, like emotionally, like the, just the toll it would take on you. Right. Cause the, the nostalgia that has to come with that, you know, taking you back, you know, 20, 30 years to, like you said, this snot-nosed kid just, you know, it's kind of sitting there wide-eyed listening to these stories and just admiring, you know, the, you know, previous generations. Um, it, it was the, I don't know, one of the, one of my biggest, I don't want to say biggest, um, it was one of the heaviest as far as like gravity goes moments outside to finally accomplish it it's that's the reason that i moved out west i'd like i decided sitting around that card table that i was going to chase western dreams that i was i was going to grow up and i was going to be a cowboy um and i was going to go out there on the prairie or in the mountains and that's where i was going to make my way and i i made that decision when i was five years old and i'm i'm chasing it still today um so I've got my grandpa was cremated and I've got a little tiny vial of his ashes and that lives in the buttstock of my rifle. And so I open in morning last season. Um, I walked out of a canvas tent and walked across the prairie towards the rising sun. And, uh, and my grandpa was there with me and, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that. I, I made that, I made that dream a reality, I suppose. Yeah, that's heavy, man. Uh, it, it, but in all the good, all, all the right ways. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, without kind of derailing us too much here, I mean, same uh, or similar experience on my end where when I shot my first, uh, uh, shot my first buck with a bow, um, I grew up hunting with my dad. I mean, he was, you know, it's, it sounds like what your grandpa was to you. My father was to me in terms of the outdoors and, you know, everything you kind of aspired to be, you know, when you got older and he passed, uh, about 12 years ago. Now it'll be 12, 12 or 13 years ago, um, in December of this year. And man, when that, when I punched that first buck with my bow, and, you know, he wasn't there to call. He wasn't there to talk to about it or just, yeah, I mean, because, you know, those those emotions, that excitement, you know, when when you see the deer go down or, you know, you know, you made, you know, a, a lethal shot on it. And yeah, that's a it's a it's a, a very it's a yeah, it's a heavy moment, but for for good reason. Right. The the all those things from your childhood come rushing back. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate that. They're not there to share with us in person or even over the phone, but you know that uh, they're somewhere appreciating it, right? No, but that's yeah, and there. I mean, your dad's always with you. Yeah, my. I mean, there's no, there's no me without my grandpa, right? And he, he, he instilled a land ethic, you know, in me as well that we're. He he wasn't like heavily involved in conservation. Um, but he always did the right thing. 
and that and that included you know how he took care of the land as a farmer um or or as a hunter or or a fisherman um that you didn't you didn't waste an ounce of meat um if you caught a fish you ate it if you went rabbit hunting you you gutted it and you skinned it and you ate it and you made use of every piece of that deer uh, and, and also you didn't trash the landscape um he uh he put where where i hunted in the 80s so when i was when i was just a little guy uh, i don't even remember this but they they put where i uh where i grew up cut my teeth into conservation into conservation restoration program crp mm-hmm. and they planted ten thousand trees in this you know just under a hundred acre spot and then in the late 90s my uncle bought uh, a bunch of farmland from another relative and planted 15,000 trees just just across the road from that original plot that my grandpa had and to put this from farmland or, or gravel pits back into you know hardwood wetland restoration was something that, that kind of stuck with me so there's no there's no me you know without him and there's no you without your pop you know yeah um and i remember i remember when i killed my first buck i was hunting with my grandpa um not side by side um but, but i uh i i shot a doe and he uh he came over and he he helped me clean it and taught me everything about that and he he taught me how to clean rabbits and and birds and stuff and then um must have been 20 2014 or 2015, I guess, um, when he was 84, that was his last season hunting deer. Um, and I, I was back in Wisconsin and sitting not far from him. And we made sure my uncle or I, we made sure that if, if he was out hunting, one of us was in the vicinity. Um, right. and he'd just hop up in a ladder stand that was like eight feet off the ground or something like that. And you'd, you'd be there when he got into the stand and you'd, come over there and help him out of the stand. And, and I heard the shot and I remember how it was really warm. There's no snow on the ground in November and just how loud it was through the, the needles and the leaves crunching my way over to him. And he, he indicated that he, he got a good hit on a small buck. And, uh, so I helped him out of the stand and he, he said, which way the buck went. And, um, it didn't even have to to find blood. I took two steps in the direction and I could see the, the, the buck lying against a tree. And, uh, and we walked over to it and I, well, at first I gave him a hard time because it was, um, it had, it had ran so hard. It, it ran straight headlong into the tree and it busted the antler off the right side. Oh, so I, I told him he didn't shoot. He just scared it to death. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we could see, uh, you could see right where the, the shot placement was and it, and it was perfect. And he, um, and he grabbed his knife and he knelt down and he put his knife back and he stood up and he looked at me and he said, I've done this enough times. You, you do it for me this once. And I knew, I knew right then and there that that was his, his last buck. And that was his last season hunting, but his, he, he got to make the decision. Song. It, it was, it was, um, it wasn't a monster by any means, but it was, it, it meant so much to me, uh, to be able to, I can't even say repay the favor. Um, 
but to do something um, there at, at the end of his, his last hunting season to say, thanks, you know, for, for a lifetime. And he, he was in the Navy too. He was my whole reason for going into the Navy. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, in his, up to that point in his 84 years was just, you know, had a ton of wisdom that he had imparted on you, but you know, he probably had, you know, in the back of his mind or he had the foresight when he, when he squeezed that trigger that he knew that that was likely the last year he was going to take. And I'm, I'm willing to bet without, you know, knowing your grandfather that that was his way to be like, all right, one more memory with DJ, one more, one more time. We're going to end this on a good note and yeah, kind of ride off into the sunset. That was it, man. It was, it, it was the perfect way to end a lifetime of hunting with him for sure. Yeah, no, that's, we, we took Honored a to do it. Yeah. And we took a bit of a detour there, but that was, those are the stories I yeah. love to hear, man. Those are the, <laughs> I mean, cause it, it, it kind of hits you in the feels a little bit when you start talking about this stuff, because it's, it's things that I tend to find myself thinking about when I'm alone in the tree stand, right? Like when you're, when you're out there, that's when those, those that, that flood of emotions tend to really wash over you and hit you with it. Absolutely. And I, and I think you got to be out there to, to experience those feelings, right? When you're under a bunch of artificial light with a bunch of technology sitting in front of you and all of the distractions that we're, we're faced with, um, you have to disconnect in order to, to enjoy those memories in the past, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So trying to get back. <laughs> trying to get back on track here yeah, a little bit. We'll, we'll get off the grandpa podcast and get back to the average <laughs> conservationist podcast. Yeah. yeah, there we go. So, so you said the, the AFI initiative started in 2020. What was it that that kind of brought about that initiative, that that kind of separate branch or, or separate arm of BHA? That one I can't tell you. I mean, it's it's a great idea, but I wasn't I wasn't there with the with the North American border, the staff when they made the decision. Um, I just knew as as soon as it as soon as the announcement came out um, that I was all in, and the, and that and that I was going to do what I could to to be a part of the development of it if there was a need um, for me to do so. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got to imagine that you know the the North American board and, and kind of the powers that be after implementing AFI probably realized that it was, it was long overdue, right? That a program like that, because you, I think you mentioned some statistics to me before we started uh, recording, but what percentage of um, BHA members are, or have some affiliation with the armed forces? So 20%, which uh, it's a fifth of the membership, which is, is a huge number um, bigger than any other conservation organization. And that's, that's based on, um, 2022 member survey results. Um, so that's, that's a current number for, for, for this year. Um, so much, much higher percent of, um, the general population than, than has served, um, and much higher percent than any other conservation organization has of having veteran active duty, um, and military support. Yeah. Well, and I'm not even going to ask you why, because I did earlier and you, you weren't sure of the answer, but I, we, we talked about it though, you know, kind of, you know, some, some hypotheses that we might have about why, and, you know, the community aspect of it, the, the general kind of demographic, um, 
of BHA membership, right? It's it seems like I mean it's I think the organization has been around for what ten or twelve years as a whole. Is that sound about right? So it's a little bit longer than that. Uh, I think two thousand four, two thousand five was the you know that's when that's when the kindling started cracking. Okay. Um, and then really, I think they the organization started really getting its feet under itself. Um, you know, around twenty ten and took off like a rocket ship um, around the time uh, Utah Senator Chaffetz uh, introduced a bill to sell off like three and a half, or, yeah, three and a half million acres, I think. I remember of that. Public lands to just, and that that's really what the, what the organization was created to stop. And so that um, there was, there was tremendous growth during that time that really highlighted that these threats to public lands are absolutely real, um, and and we need we need somebody to rally behind to prevent decisions like that from going forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And BHA in general does a, a terrific job of really keeping their their membership base um, informed, especially um, kind of from the policy side of things, um, because as you know, over the past. Oh gosh, probably since that 2010, 2012 era, the the public land movement has become something that is undeniable, right? It's and I don't know if prior to that I was just, you know, had my head in the sand, I just wasn't looking in the right places or it was one of those things that it was never it was never something that was really affected me. Um and it, it seems kind of selfish to say that, but you know, I wasn't at that time, you know, I, I was kind of getting back into, into hunting because I went through this, this stretch, like, you know, through college and then a few years after college where it just wasn't um, a big priority. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't dedicating, you know, nearly enough time to it. And, and what time I was dedicated to it was, you know, kind of the traditional deer camp stuff, right? A couple of days with, with the, with the old man, with, you know, with my grandpa, um, at deer camp. And, and that was about it. It was, it was more of a traditional, a tradition than it was, uh, you know, a lifestyle like it's become, you know, later on in my life. And since then, again, BHA has done such a, a great job of all giving their members a voice to, you know, their representatives to stop things like this, this land transfer, this land sale, um, in Utah that you were just talking about. Yeah. And I think, you know, my experiences are pretty similar to that. And I, th- I think part of what it is, is you, you become an adult and you, you start to see the writing on the wall and, and different things are much more clear than they were when you were a kid and your, you know, your focus was on finding a big buck and, and impressing dad and, and grandpa, <laughs> yep. you know, your, your goals change and your, your perspective changes as, as you grow um, and you realize, you know, that some of these things aren't just free. Some of the stuff that, you know, you, you, you and I were fortunate enough to grow up with, they didn't happen by accident. Right. Right. When my, my grandpa told me he didn't see an antler deer in Manitowoc County until sometime in the late seventies. Wow. They were, they vanished off the landscape with the way industrial farming picked up after the great depression and the dust bowl happened and someone had to pick up the slack who still had soil on the ground and Wisconsin was one of those places, um, you know, you farmed from 
property boundary to property boundary. The hedgerows were gone, habitat disappeared. And at that time, all the, all the deer were up north. Um, and some folks, you know, saw the writing on the wall and said, hey, maybe we should, you know, change some practices. Maybe we should make some decisions that um, incorporate native species back into the landscape. And now, look, I mean, look at, right, white-tailed deer turkey recovery is, is a huge, you know, example of what conservation has done for us in the last hundred years. Um, and I, I, sometimes I just, I don't think kids see that i didn't see it as a kid i had no idea yeah. that there didn't used to be Same deer here. here right like yep your you know the your your baseline is is what it is when you're a kid um you, you know, your baseline is is the present it's what's in front of you right now and there is no vision into the past and there's no thinking about what's ahead um and luckily you know some folks in my grandparents generation decided hey looking ahead, things aren't so good and looking into the past, things were better. So let's make a change to the landscape. And it's, it's just our turn to, to pick up that, that torch and carry it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think what's, what's cool about BHA, um, you know, I think about like, like Boone and Crockett and BHA and a couple of other organizations that aren't doing one thing specifically, right. They're, they're promoting the, the North American model for wildlife conservation. They're promoting health, the habitat access to that habitat um you know the fact that, that wildlife is held in the public trust and it's for all of us and I, I think of that as like either the the hub of the wheel or it's like the tire and that your you know mealy fanatic foundation and delta waterfowl rough grouse society pheasants forever these are all the spokes on these wheels all of these you know hyper focused species specific things but if, if you don't have a hub to hold everything together, if you don't have access, if you don't have land to hunt, um, you know, if, if you don't have a, a healthy farm bill um, making, you know, the CRP program accessible, all of those spokes are just going to shoot all over the place and, and we're going to lose the works. Um, so it, it kind of, it takes a balance of all of these organizations and, and someone hold everything together yeah that that's that's very well put dj because i never really looked at it in that in that way but organizations like bha that are kind of this all-encompassing isn't the right word but they're what bha stands for what you know their mission is is inherently necessary for like you just said all these other organizations to be able to do the great work that they do because yeah without all those things then you know we're just trying to protect animals that no one's trying to protect where they live and if you can't protect your home then you can't really protect yourself kind of thing you know what i mean right yeah definitely and i mean i'm a, I'm a life member with trout unlimited i'm a life member with the rocky mountain goat alliance if you can see that up there oh um, yeah um, you know, I'm, I'm involved in as, as much as time allows me to be involved in. Um, but I think the the broad reach that backcountry hunters and anglers has, um, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have a, a volunteer leader spot kind of in, in that hub. Um, cause I, I think that's extremely important work right now. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah. So what keeps you motivated DJ to, to continue, 
you know, fighting this good fight for our public lands to, you know, keep fighting this good fight for, you know, the veteran community or the, you know, service community? What, what is it that, that, that keeps you wanting to come back for more and more? I mean, you mentioned that you're, you know, life members of, of multiple organizations, um, as well as, you know, serving on the board for AFI. I mean, what, what's that spark for you? Um, man, I was born this way. Um, and I, I think, I, I think it. that's true. I think that's true for a lot of the military community. We haven't had a draft since, um, no, I'm going to get the date wrong. We haven't had a draft since the, the tail end of the Vietnam war. Canada hasn't had a conscription since world war two. We're an all volunteer service. Every member of the military community volunteered. They raised their right hand and, and they, nobody had a gun to their back. They said that oath willingly. We're, we're every, every one of us from that community is already predestined to serve. Conservation thrives on volunteer service. There's, there's, there's no better volunteer base than the military community. It's, it's a totally natural fit. And, and there's, there's not a louder voice in advocacy, in my opinion, than the, the military community. We've all put our lives down on the line for, for our country and I'll, I'll continue to do so for, for the dirt that I hunt. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the correlation between the two, that, that inherent, um, trait or knack, or I'm not even sure the word, but to, to service something bigger than yourself, because that's what serving in the military is. That's what conservation work is because they're, they're both kind of playing the long game, right? I mean, that's why, you know, they're, you know, people serve for, you know, six years or 10 years or 20 years, right? I mean, they're, they're in it to see, to make sure that, you know, future generations are provided the same freedoms that you and I get to get to, you know, enjoy, you know, living in the USA right now. And the same thing can be said for conservation, right? I mean, I've heard, stories of individuals, um, volunteering in Wisconsin, um, for like RMEF for, for elk habitat, elk rest, uh, habitat restoration, all this good stuff, knowing full well that they were never going to have an opportunity to hunt those elk in their lifetime, but they see the the bigger picture going back to like what you talked about with your, your grandpa and his friends in Wisconsin. I mean, seeing the big picture, seeing, having the, the foresight to say something needs to change or, I need to do my part while I'm here to ensure that, you know, in, in your grandpa's case, so that DJ, when he gets older and he has kids, they can enjoy the, you know, these same things that, that we had the opportunity to when we were younger. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a direct gift that I received, you know, was, was those trees, a, a place to hang a tree stand. Um, and I mean, you mentioned like stuff you're never going to get to hunt. Chances of me drawing a goat tag in my lifetime are slim and none. <laughs> but knowing, knowing that they're on the mountain is is worth a lot to me. And knowing that they're going to be on the mountain for my daughter and and whoever comes after that that means a lot. Yeah, it's it's leaving your your legacy right in in a lot of different ways, and I think that is. That's something that shouldn't be understated. It's something that should be celebrated for for anyone that's volunteering, right? And I think sometimes in the world of conservation, you know, we see 
you know, people like, you know, voices and, and, and people in the conservation space, you know, the, the Lantonis, the, the Randy Newbergs, uh, the Shane Dorians that are, you know, just these massive voices, these influential voices in the world of conservation. And people sometimes think that they need to be those guys, right. Or those gals, you know, and that's not the case. We just need to do our part, right. We just need to do what we can do. And that, you add all that up, you add up the work that you do, the work that I do, the work that my neighbor does or your neighbor does. And pretty soon, like that makes a really big impact that is, is hard for you individually to see, but 20 years from now, that work is going to be undeniable. Definitely. And I I think that's that, that, and all we're doing is we're carrying the torch, right? The Randy Newbergs, the Lantonis, um, you know, you know, today's really, really loud voices in the conservation arena. I don't, I don't want to downplay any one of their accomplishments, but they're just picking up the torch for the Aldo Leopolds and for the Gifford Pinchots and, and the heroes of, of yesterday. And all they're doing is, is inspiring, you know, little Randy Newbergs out there or, or little, you know, <laughs> wannabe Randy Newbergs out there to, to pick up the torch from, from Randy and take that thing and, and run with it and get innovative and, you know, accomplish more than, than he did. Um, so it's just, it's, it's just a perpetual thing that has to keep going. You know, we're, we're lucky that there were Theodore Roosevelt's taking care of places for those in the womb of time right? That's me. Um, I was, I was in the womb of time when he said that and that the, the Aldo Leopolds and the Bob Marshalls and the Frank churches and the Gifford Pinchot's and all of these, all of these other guys came through and said, Hey, you know, we're, we're losing this thing and we don't want to lose it. What are we going to do to not lose it? Set us up for where we're at. And now we got to say, Hey, we're not making any more wild places. No, nope. we're not. You know, we're we're really not making any more access. We're we're losing more than we're making, and if that continues to dwindle and shrink, so is opportunity. Um, so what are you know what are we going to do today to carry on that legacy, and how are we going to set it up for the next generation to pick up the torch when I'm ready to put it down? Yeah, we got to keep that wheel turning. That's for sure. So DJ, walk me through you know, what some of these events look like, um, that AFI is putting on and, and how, how, how they're using the outdoors as, as this tool to, you know, build, you know, conservation leaders. Um, through a lot, a lot of different methods. Um, you know, one is, we do these train the trainer camps where we'll have um, like a, a turkey camp in Montana. Not super exciting, not super exotic, um, but if you're if you're new to hunting turkeys, we're going to go over some some turkey tactics. We're going to go over some turkey biology, some turkey history. Um, that you know, here in Montana, we're lucky. Uh, Dave Nick now works with National Wild Turkey Federation. He's offered his time to show up two years in a row now and just, you know, give, give kind of a, a base lesson on turkey history, biology, habits, and then how to make good hunting tactics out of that. 
Um, so, so we call them dual skills camps when we do these train the trainer things. So that's one skill um, is getting after turkeys. And then two is skills in the conservation arena. What's current, what's current legislation look like? Where do we need loud advocacy? Where, um, you know, what are, what are today's hot button issues that we need to, to get after either to support um, like recovering America's wildlife act, or what do we need to nip in the bud? Um, and so we're going to talk about that around the campfire at night. And then the other thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a bunch of folks who didn't all have the same military experience, but all had a similar experience sitting around that fire and sharing stories and talking about what life is like on a submarine or what life is like in a tent in Afghanistan. And the fact that we were watching the same BS movies, making the same jokes and, and thinking the same things, you know, 4,000 miles apart, fighting in different ways, but fighting the same fight. And there's, there's something about that camaraderie um, around that fire that is different than any other hunting camp could ever be. And I, did, I never even thought about it. Um, I don't hang out with the military community or a bunch of veterans, um, you know, too terribly often. I'm not involved with um, the American Legion or um, any of that. And I, I didn't realize what I was missing until that conversation happened and I was able to like talk about some stuff that I haven't ever talked to anybody about because there's, there's no understanding of what I was going to say. Um, if you, if you weren't there or if you didn't take part in it. Um, so that was, to me, that was like the totally invisible benefit, um, of, of doing this kind of stuff. So that's, that's one option where we do these dual skills, train the trainer camps. And the, the idea there is you come out of that, um, ready to go back to Michigan or ready to go back to Virginia and pick up the torch and run with it. We're going to get you a set of skills on advocacy and how to get involved with your state's chapter in backcountry hunters and anglers. And we're developing liaisons in as many states as we can to have some, to have a guy who, or a guy or a gal who's a go-between the armed forces initiative and their state chapter or their, their, their state's board or, or regional board um, as applicable to keep the chapter abreast of armed forces initiative and to keep armed forces initiative abreast of what's important in their region or their state. Um, we're doing stewardship um, projects. I, we went into the Bob Marshall and cleared trail of deadfall this summer. Um, and I mean, that's, that's pretty cut and dry, right? Just, just stewardship stuff. Um, cleanups, cast and blast events, women's events, um, you know, specifically targeting women in the veteran community. Um, pretty much we're, you know, we're, our shotgun pattern is pretty wide right now. Um, and we're, we're building the foundation of this thing. And a lot of this, a lot of that wide pattern is so that we can build the foundation and so we can network and find the right people to put in leadership positions in the program. Yeah. Well, I think that that, that approach, that kind of, you know, wide pattern shotgun approach is necessary just because the, the military community is, is so big, 
and you know there's you know different branches people have different experiences uh, people come from different regions and you don't want to neglect uh, certain areas certain branches whatever the case is so you you kind of have to cast that wide net in order to to try to get as many people involved as you can um the part that you just mentioned about you know kind of the the campfire talks the campfire stories and mentioning that you had never really talked about it because it's hard to explain the situation or your experiences with someone who doesn't have a kind of a point of reference right like absolutely and to to be able like i've got to imagine that that's that's just so cathartic for you know the entire group to be able to kind of talk about it because you know that's that's what helps you get through shit that's what helps you you know heal or cope or whatever you know whatever term you want to use is talking about it and if you can talk about it with people who have you know different but similar experiences and oh that happened to me oh you guys were watching this too like i mean those those types of like you said the 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 blind takeaways that you had is um is something that i i don't think you can really quantify um at the onset of of you know a weekend event or or something like that because you you don't really know what's going to come how those conversations are going to unfold what people are going to take away from it but i'd imagine that they're they're pretty positive experiences all the way around absolutely um i think cathartic i mean that's that's like a six dollar word um but that's that's definitely <laughs> Um, that's definitely what it was. And I, and I didn't even, I didn't even see the writing on the wall on that one until it, it had happened. And the, the value there, you know, is, is huge. Um, we took a pretty big group into the boundary waters this summer. Um, just a, I don't know, a little over two months ago now in August. And, um, you know, the, the idea there was that, uh, you know, there's threats to the boundary waters from copper sulfide mining and permanent protections are, are definitely the goal. Um, so let's get some folks from around the country out there experiencing um, that that wild place um, and paddling, uh, paddling some awesome canoes. Um, Winona Canoe Company hopped on board and they lent us all of the boats and paddles and pfds that we needed for the trip and they were they were brand new boats i didn't realize it was going to be like that but they i mean they, they put us in these cadillacs right and sent us into the boundary waters with these, these brand new uh hot rod canoes which was super awesome um but the campfire talks outside of why the boundary waters are so important and what these copper sulfide mine threats mean and, and why these permanent protections are so important. Um, the campfire talks on that trip were, were pretty super heavy duty, uh, I'd say. And um, the important of the importance of, for some people just having, having an event on the horizon that they're already signed up for it, Maybe, maybe it's a trip into the boundary waters with a group of veterans. Maybe, you know, you're taking this information back to your home state and you're, you're setting up with Arizona game and fish department. Um, you're taking the lead on restocking Apache trout in a high mountain stream where the only way to get the trout in is, is in a five gallon bucket 
on your back and that thing is on your calendar and that that calendar event that thing to look forward to in the future is um is the thing that carries you through some low times so you can make it there um and accomplish whatever that mission is that you signed up for um and those those talks can be pretty heavy duty and lead to some pretty positive outcomes with a, a future of you know getting getting real therapy and um and you know fixing some fixing some major problems that um outside of that campfire you weren't gonna let any of that stuff out yeah yeah the yeah i mean kind of giving um you know the military community uh a new mission a new set of goals I and mean, i think it says that right on the website uh, or right on the web page there that that is that's one of the goals of afi and i think that that and i've you know i've listened to you know other podcasts with veterans and and things like that and that seems to be one of the the big um emphases emphases i don't even know if that's a word that seems to be a big emphasis is a new mission um, because, you know, for, for guys or gals that serve for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, they get out and that's all that they know, right? They got in at, you know, 18, 19 years old and they did that for their entire adult life. And then they don't really know what's next. And now granted, some people are very fortunate that they know what's going to, what's going to transpire after that, you know, maybe they have something set up, but for those that don't, it's, um, it's a great way to, to keep that, to keep your mind sharp, to keep that, 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 I don't know if lifestyle is the right word, but to keep that same focus and that same energy just redirected, um, in another direction. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was a hundred percent for me when I transitioned out of the, um, out of the Navy, it, um, when you're a kid, when you go in, um, like when you're, I, mean, I was 20 when I went in and there's, you know, there's kids going in when they're 17, 18 years old and you, you do your hitch and you get out. You never really had a chance to like grow up or have any responsibility outside of what your mission was, right? You wake right. up every morning in the military and you know exactly what your mission is. Um, and then you get out of the military and you wake up the next day and you don't know what to do right i you know you i got out i had a job um and i knew i knew that i had to go to work but i hadn't ever really lived on my own um you know and i like i, I had a house in georgia and i lived off base and i you know I, I lived on my own but i always knew where i had to be when i had to be there when my duty day was, when the boat was going out to sea, what, like what my maintenance schedule was when we were in port. And I didn't have, um, I didn't have the same adult responsibilities because I had a different set of responsibilities and I didn't know what to do with my time. And I, I didn't, I was, I was lost. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Um, and was probably making some like not, not super great decisions, um, <laughs> spending too much time at the bar, um, uh, making, you know, making poor decisions, spending too much time in the gym, just like working myself to, to absolute fatigue. Um, I, I guess to get my mind off of things, I, I'm not sure. 
and I had an opportunity uh, to go to Alaska. And I've a guy that um, my my grandpa's best buddy, his son moved to Nome, Alaska, straight out of college. And I'd always I've always known Keith like my whole life, right? Because he was always my the my grandpa and his best buddy Ken Conger. Um, I called him grandpa Ken when I was a kid, he was like a second grandpa. They had a cottage on the same lake as my grandparents. And I just, just grew up around their family and Keith, um, Ken's son invited me up to Nome to go on a kayak paddle. Uh, I was thinking about going to Alaska and like, you know, Western dreams are cool and all Alaska dreams are cooler. Um, so I was talking to Keith about how to get myself up to Alaska and what I should do when I get there. And he said, just come to Nome. And, um, and we'll go for a paddle in, uh, in sea kayaks. And I'd never taken like a really big Western trip. I'd never really, um, you know, done anything more than like maybe camping overnight in a campground or something like that. And, um, and his wife drove us in two kayaks up into the Kigarok mountains and, uh, dumped us off where there's an overpass over the, uh, train river. And, uh, and then went back to Nome. And then we paddled 80 miles uh, to Teller, all the way down the Coosa Train and the Pilgrim Rivers and through Emmerich Basin and the Tuxuk Channel and out into Grantley Harbor. And I spent six days paddling a kayak, not seeing another human being. And I saw, I saw the whole suite of Alaskan wildlife. There were, you know, brown bears and moose and caribou and salmon by the thousands swimming upriver underneath us. Um, bald eagles, beavers, seals, once we got closer, um, closer to the sea. And I didn't see another person. And that was the first time I'd kind of had that, like, you know, at that three or four day mark, you start to feel good. Um, and then like by day five or six, you're, you're really feeling good. And the conversations Keith and I had on that trip were, were huge, uh, and heavy. And I, I left Alaska and I like, I thought to myself, and this is where I had that moment from, from being a kid, uh, to being an adult where there's no way that wild place happened by accident. Right. There's no way those moose and those caribou are still on the landscape just accidentally there's no way the salmon have spawning habitat just because they do it's it's because someone made a decision and put in the effort to make sure that those salmon have a place to spawn and that there's a place for a moose and, and the brown bear on the landscape and i i went home from that trip kind of like right side up again and um and thought to myself well this is what this is what I've got to do is to make sure that I'm, I'm being a part of the solution to make sure that that's there. So someone else who needs that experience can have that experience. Um, and so like at the time, this is probably 2012 or so, um, I didn't know BHA was a thing yet. And I knew, I knew Trout Unlimited was a thing. So I just, I just hitched myself to Trout Unlimited in Arizona and started working on Apache trout restoration and Gila trout restoration and backpacking trout into high mountain streams because there's no other way 
to get them back there. And if you, at the time, if you looked at the demographic for Trout Unlimited, um, not many of those dudes were putting a five gallon pail on their back and heading up into a 10,000 elevation stream. Um, you know, so, so then I, I knew what I was supposed to do and the fulfillment that comes from that and, and lacing a pair of boots back up, um, really set me on a, a, a much better, uh, much better path for the use of my free time. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank God for Keith is all I've got to yeah, say because, absolutely. you know, it's, it's funny to look back, you know, 10, 12 years, um, and be able to really pinpoint that moment, right. Then when, when everything shifted, when everything changed and, you know, after spending six years in a submarine, really stretch your legs, right. Like really stand up tall again, stand, you know, and, and feel like you have a purpose or you have that, that mission, um, to, to be part of the, the solution and not the problem per se. And no, that's because, you know, I mean, I, it's probably, you probably can't quantify what you've, you know, what your volunteer time has done over the past decade, but without that, without Keith inviting you out there, maybe that doesn't happen. Right. I mean, you know, who's to say one way or the other, but it did. And you're here now and you know the the work that you're doing with AFI, you know, with BHA, the work that you did with Trout Unlimited in Arizona. I mean, these these are all things to hang your hat on and be proud of, and it's um, it's motivation for who's ever listening to this to say, maybe that's what I need to do. You know, maybe maybe that's that's my calling, conservation, and I think that's you know that's why I think conversations like these are so important because even if one person walks away from this going man, DJ had such an awesome story or DJ's upbringing was, you know, the guys from Wisconsin, right? God, man, I grew up just like that. I was even in the military. And if this is what he can do, shit, I can do that. If he can do it, I can do it, right? And that's that's all it takes is is just, you know, changing the mind of one person or or changing the habits of one person. Um, and that's that ripple effect is, it's there. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, to get involved in conservation, um, I mean, obviously come give it, get, give us a shout at the armed forces initiative. Um, if you're looking to get involved, um, or, or whatever, you know, whatever drives you, maybe it's mountain goats, maybe, you know, maybe it's big giant mule deer, maybe it's ornithology and watching birds and just knowing that the Western tanager is out there on the landscape, like whatever grabs you follow it. Yeah. But all you got to do is show up. Like I, I guarantee every organization out there needs membership. They need support and they need someone to, to pick up the torch. And all you got to do is pick that torch up and the rest is like, it's going to, it's going to come to you like falling off of a log. Um, <laughs> it just, just show up, just, just hop on the log. I promise I'll help you fall off of it. Yeah. Right on. All right, DJ, before I let you get out of here, man, where can people learn more about BHA's AFI? Um, so just go to backcountryhunters.org. Under programs, you'll see the Armed Forces Initiative. Um, find us on Instagram, um, BHA AFI. Um, Facebook, I don't know. 
don't think we have a TikTok at this time. Um, I don't know if that's a good idea or not, um, but we're 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 really trying to build the foundation of this thing right now. So follow along on social media for for what the most up to date thing is um, at that BHA AFI account, or if you just plug Armed Forces Initiative into the search bar in Instagram, um, we'll we'll pop up there. Um, if you want to see what events we have going on, that's under that programs page on the website. Uh, and right now, we're it's super convenient that we're doing this podcast right now because we're doing a membership drive through Veterans Day. Awesome. Um, so we've got a bunch of sweepstakes prizes. It's $25 for an annual membership um, for the Armed Forces community. Um, and that gets you signed up for a, a bunch of prizes that we're giving away. Um, I think we got stuff from Mystery Ranch, First Light, Benchmade. Um, the the amount of, of industry support and the brands that are supporting this program is just awesome. Um, and you can see all that on backcountryhuntersandanglers.org. Search for Armed Forces Initiative. No, that's uh, that's great. And and like I said, I'm I'm glad that that I could just help in in some way to spread this message to you know help further the mission of you know the armed forces initiative because it's uh it's one that's certainly important it certainly deserves recognition attention and you know 25 bucks like you said that's like four beers right like we can all we can all afford that right yeah for sure and you know the the bigger the membership gets the better the network gets the stronger the community gets and then you know, the louder the voice gets for advocacy. Um, and, you know, some things that I mentioned that we have on the horizon right now is permanent protections for the boundary waters. Um, you can, um, there's there's certainly a, a link to that on the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website, as well as Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters, who partnered with us on that trip into the boundary waters. Uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act is a huge one. Rawa. Um, if, if you hear, if, if you hear somebody say Rawa, well, what's that? Um, that's going to be huge for the future of keeping species off the endangered species list and having responsible use of financial and time and agency resources when it comes to managing wildlife going forward. Um, and that's, that's all the stuff that we want to advocate for and, and push for, um, so we can see what the next fight is and um and keep the torch lit and uh and pass it on to the next generation yeah very well put dj thank you a ton for taking some time tonight man it was great to talk to you great to learn more about afi and uh look forward to talking to you again in the future all your listeners um who have stuck around this long and listened to me ramble um and and, and talk about in a, a program that's super important to me obviously um but I, you know, it has the potential, the sky's the limit for, for the Armed Forces Initiative. Um, and, and we're just going to take this thing straight up like a rocket. I love it. I love it. All right, DJ, man, take care of yourself. I will talk soon. All right. Yeah, you do the same, Marcus. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you again to DJ for joining me for part one of the, uh, Veterans Day tribute that we are running. Um, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Hardside Hydration, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, Outdoor Class, and of course, 
2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media, where it's going to be only positive, conservation-driven content landing in your feed there. Uh, so again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, be sure and tune in next week for part two of our Veterans Day tribute. Um, also, be sure to check out the averageconservationist.com. Grab some gear to uh, help support conservation in the process. And um, yeah, until next week, everybody, stay safe out there. And remember that conservation starts with you.